These non-privileged texts are further evidence of President Trump's supreme dereliction of duty. How much evidence do we need? Uh. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Of course it isn't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around. Swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. On Monday night, the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee probing the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. That would be Donald Trump's last pathetic and deadly effort to try and steal the 2020 election. Uh, On Monday night, the committee unanimously voted to hold former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress for failing to testify about thousands of documents and emails and text messages that he had turned over to the committee before he stopped cooperating with them entirely, almost certainly on orders from his old boss. Before the vote... Uh, Committee Vice Chair Congresswoman Liz Cheney had this to say. This vote on contempt today relates principally to Mr. Meadows' refusal to testify about text messages and other communications that he admits are not privileged. He has not claimed and does not have any privileged basis to refuse entirely to testify regarding these topics. Let me give just three examples. First, President Trump's failure to stop the violence. On January 6th, our Capitol building was attacked and invaded. The mob was summoned to Washington by President Trump. And as many of those involved have admitted on videotape, in social media, and in federal district court, they were provoked to violence by President Trump's false claims that the election was stolen. The violence was evident to all. It was covered in real time by almost every news channel. 
But for 187 minutes, President Trump refused to act. When action by our president was required, essential, and indeed compelled by his oath to our Constitution. Mr. Meadows received numerous text messages, which he has produced without any privilege claim, imploring that Mr. Trump take the specific action we all knew his duty required. These text messages leave no doubt the White House knew exactly what was happening here at the Capitol. Members of Congress, the press, and others wrote to Mark Meadows as the attack was underway. One text Mr. Meadows received said, quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Another, quote, they have breached the Capitol. In a third, Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? A fourth, there's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. And another from someone inside the Capitol. We are all helpless. Dozens of texts, including from Trump administration officials, urged immediate action by the president. Quote, POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. In another, Mark, he needs to stop this now. A third, in all caps, tell them to go home. A fourth, and I quote, POTUS needs to calm this down. Indeed, according to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, Quote, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president. Quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. End quote. But hours passed without necessary action by the president. These non-privileged texts are further evidence of President Trump's supreme dereliction of duty during those 187 minutes. As if any more evidence was needed <laughs> at this point of Trump's supreme dereliction of duty on all sorts of things. Good point. 
But apparently, uh, more evidence is needed for Merrick Garland and the DOJ to take actual criminal action against these gangsters above and beyond the contempt referrals being handed to them by the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol in hopes of stealing a presidential election. I will discuss that with my guest momentarily. But as it turns out, all of those Fox News personalities, Desi Doyen, that Cheney quoted as as texting Mark Meadows that day, begging him to get Trump to call off his dogs at the Capitol. Yeah, about that. Yeah, well, those Fox News people, well, they would quickly uh, go on to blaming not the people that they knew Trump had control over, as you can tell from those text messages, but they would blame Antifa and lefties dressed up as MAGA supporters when these Fox folks actually went on the air and spoke about the insurrection. Even though some, you know, 500 people have or so have now been charged to date for that attack, none of them apparently were Antifa. But they were all supporters of Donald Trump's. But aside from the uh, Fox puppets in uh, Trump's pocket and the fact that Don Jr. had to text Mark Meadows to get his father to call off the attack, that's kind of sad, isn't it? He <laughs> yeah. couldn't contact him himself. Or he wasn't picking up the phone of his own son. <sighs> As we alluded uh, briefly on yesterday's broadcast, the committee is now beginning to focus on members of Congress who were involved in all of this, in both their public statements uh, and and their contempt referral for Meadows. For example, the Meadows referral cites uh, Meadows participated in meetings and calls during which participants reported reportedly discussed the need to, quote, fight back against mounting evidence of purported voter fraud. There was no such evidence. Meadows participated in at least one such meeting in the Oval Office with Mr. Trump and members of Congress. The committee writes, really, who are those members of Congress? They say Meadows participated in another such call days before the January 6th attack with Trump, members of Congress and attorneys for Trump's reelection campaign and some 300 state and local officials around the country to discuss the goal of overturning certain states' electoral college results on January 6th. And apparently there were texts from these members as well. A member of Congress, for example, texted Meadows the day after the uh, violent attack, lamenting that it had been a terrible day. Yesterday was a terrible day. The lawmaker wrote in one of the text exchanges that Meadows himself had turned over to the committee. Quote, we tried everything we could in our objection to the six states. I'm sorry nothing worked, that lawmaker said. The January 6th panel unveiled these uh, damning texts during their vote to recommend the criminal contempt charges against Meadows, but they have yet to identify the public, uh, publicly identify the lawmaker who sent that message. Committee member Adam Schiff, who read that text aloud, noted, quote, the committee is not naming these lawmakers at this time as our investi- investigation is ongoing. Hmm. Committee Chair Benny Thompson said separately, however, that they would be releasing those names at an appropriate time in the future. Schiff noted another message from a different unidentified lawmaker uh, who had texted Meadows 
trying to urge Mike Pence to hijack the proceedings on January 6th. The unidentifier, unidentified lawmaker wrote to Meadows, quote, on January 6th, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. Really? Who wrote that to Mark Meadows? I suspect we will be, we will be finding that out as well. In the meantime... Mark Meadows, a former member of Congress himself, will almost certainly now soon be facing a criminal indictment from the Department of Justice following Congress's referral. And as long as we're talking about Trump's supreme dereliction of duty, we have not even started on the hundreds of thousands of Americans that Donald Trump helped to kill via his dereliction of duty on the COVID pandemic. I am happy to note, however, that the committee looking into January 6th is not the only such select committee that has been set up by the House to look at Trump's deadly crimes and disasters as president. There's also a House select committee on the coronavirus crisis. And there, too, former Trump administration officials are refusing to testify and, yes, facing potential criminal charges as well. Peter Navarro, a prominent Trump administration COVID denier, says he will not cooperate with the House investigation on that because Trump told him not to. How'd that work out for Steve Bannon, Pete? Navarro's claim references an angry statement about the House Committee on the Virus Crisis from Trump in uh, in November, in which the failed former president panned, quote, communist Democrats who he said were trying to smear his administration's, quote, unprecedented and incredible coronavirus response. Trump wrote, I'm telling Peter Navarro to protect executive privilege and not let these unhinged Democrats discredit our great accomplishments. That, Navarro wrote to the committee uh, last week, quote, is a direct order that I should not comply with the committee's subpoena for documents. In other words, he wrote, quote, this matter is out of my hands. <laughs> does he realize Trump is not president anymore? I don't know. There is no such does. thing as a direct order that he must comply with. There is no direct orders. He does not work for Trump. There is no executive privilege at all by former presidents unless the sitting president president decides that there is. Navarro does not work for Trump anymore. It's it's you know, I hope that uh, Navarro will ultimately find out all of these things that we are saying here today uh, when that committee refers him, hopefully, to the DOJ for criminal contempt and denying a lawful congressional subpoena as well. There is plenty of supreme dereliction of duty to go around. (laughs) Apparently, in regard to everything that happened in 2020. But guess what? Some good government groups are not done with what happened in 2016, and they are demanding accountability for both that election and Attorney General Merrick Garland's response, or lack thereof, to all of this. A new lawsuit has now been filed regarding Donald Trump's 2016 campaign and its alleged coordination with, yes, the Russian government. 
That story is next up with Ron Fine of freespeechforpeople.org, one of the groups now filing suit against the Federal Elections Commission for its supreme dereliction of duty. As I said, plenty to go around. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. From Russia with love, I fly to you. We haven't had an excuse to play that song on this show for a while, but we do today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We have been, of course, spending a lot of time of late reporting on the Trump campaign's unapologetic, broadly coordinated, and ultimately deadly attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election. And I suspect, unfortunately, we'll be reporting on that particular attempted crime of the century for some time as it came terrifyingly close to working out and killing what is whatever is left of democracy in this nation, even as the parties involved in that attempted crime are doubling their efforts to pull off the theft of upcoming elections, having learned much through their failure to pull it off the last time. But never mind 2020 for the moment. Some democracy advocates are still trying to learn from what happened in 2016 that helped propel Donald Trump into the White House and into our long national nightmares in the first place. A pair of nonprofit advocacy groups sued the Federal Election Commission last week in federal court in Washington, D.C., alleging that the FEC has failed for the past five years to act on a complaint against the Russian government and the 2016 Trump presidential campaign alleging violations of campaign finance law, according to Business Insider. The two groups, Campaign for Accountability and Free Speech for People, argue in their federal lawsuit that the FEC's delay has potentially deprived the American public of information that was not revealed during special counsel Robert Mueller's two-year investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Even today, despite multiple investigations, critical information about the money spent in the 2016 election is still unknown, the groups argue in their complaint, noting issues that Mueller's special counsel investigation apparently never even investigated. How much did the Russian Federation spend? When and for which efforts did it make the payments? How much and which of that spending was coordinated with the Trump campaign? While Mueller's office was unable to document hard evidence of unlawful coordination between the Kremlin and the Trump campaign, his report did document at least 10 episodes of potential obstruction of justice by the former president. Unfortunately, since the Department of Justice has yet to further investigate those well-detailed allegations of corruption by a sitting president, at least as far as we know, there is likely much more to the Trump-Russia relationship from 2016 that is still unknown to the American public. 
and to law enforcement agencies and to the nation's supposed campaign finance regulators at the FEC. Emphasis on supposed there, as I suspect I'll discuss with my guest momentarily. Campaigns are required to disclose the dates, amounts, and purposes of any coordinated spending. That, according to Free Speech for People's legal director, Ron Fine, even five years after the 2016 election, he says, we still lack basic information as to what happened with the Russian government and the Trump campaign's coordination. We have, of course, reported on failures by the FEC for years on this program to hold almost anyone or any group accountable for pretty much anything. That, shamefully, is somewhat by design. The commission is a six-person commission with three commissioners each appointed by each of the two major parties. And that has resulted, at least in recent years, thanks to, you guessed it, Republicans gaming the commission to assure that it stays deadlocked on just about everything, particularly on high-profile matters, even on votes to investigate campaign finance violations that its own staff investigators have recommended that the commission vote to investigate further. The FEC, at least in theory, enforces civil campaign finance laws and has the authority to seek civil penalties with a five-year statute of limitations period, with that period now ending in the 2016 complaint uh, from these groups, they have filed suit in federal court to try and force action from the FEC, as I understand it. Way back in December of 2016, Free Speech for People and Campaign for Accountability filed their original complaint with the FEC against the Russian Federation and the Trump campaign, alleging that the Russian government paid for computer hacks, social media posts, paid political advertisements to influence the 2016 election, and that the Trump campaign engaged in, quote, coordination with the Russian government. Five years later, the groups now charge the FEC has failed to take action, so they are doing so now in federal court. Joining us now to explain is Ron Fine, one of our uh, from one of our favorite nonpartisan government accountability groups, FreeSpeechForPeople.org, which has long challenged big money in politics, corruption at the highest levels of our government, in its continuing fight for free and fair elections. Oh, Counselor, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. It's great to join you again. So, uh, first off, here. Uh, thank you, by the way, for not letting whatever the hell happened in 2016 fall into the memory hole amid the newly terrifying assault on the 2020 election, because it seems to me without whatever happened in 2016, we would likely never have gotten to the further mess created in 2020 by a president who was already in office under questionable means. Now, your complaint highlights a different type of of conspiracy or coordination that the Mueller special counsel probe different from what they were investigating under criminal law versus the quote coordination between the Russian Federation and the Trump campaign that you're alleging in your 2016 complaint. So can you help disambiguate, if you will, those two different types of coordination or conspiracy or collusion that we're talking about here in his investigation versus your complaint with the FEC? 
thanks. It's a, a really uh, subtle nuance to people that are not immersed in it, but mm-hmm. it's actually legally important. Uh, when Mueller was appointed, the order appointing him actually said that he was meant to look into any coordination between uh, Russian efforts and the, the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. And in the Mueller report, unfortunately, uh, he didn't make any attempt to interpret uh, or even look up whether the word coordinated actually has a meaning in the relevant federal law, and in fact made a, an incorrect statement that was noted when the report came out by a lot of observers. He said that uh, coordination does not have a settled definition in federal criminal law, and then said, we understand coordination to require an agreement, tacit or express. Mm-hmm. So in, in essence, what he did was he assumed that the word coordination is is a word like collusion that doesn't really have a legal meaning mm-hmm. and just connected it to conspiracy in essence which is a you know well understood concept in criminal law but that is not how federal campaign fin- finance law works in 2002 uh, in what's called the McCain-Feingold Act mm-hmm. uh, or formerly known as the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002 Congress passed a law specifying that Uh, coordination shall not require agreement or formal collaboration. Mm -hmm. So whereas Mueller said it requires an agreement, Congress said it shall not require an agreement. And the idea of coordinated communication is to deal with something that was a a big problem in in political spending uh, and disclosure in the 90s, where you would get uh, these groups that would... um, uh, that were officially not part of the campaign, but mm-hmm. would you know find out the campaign strategy and would uh, spend a lot of money not subject to contribution limits, um, making ads that c- could as well have been made by the campaigns. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the McCain-Feingold Act said was we want to set a, a pretty low threshold for what counts as being coordinated. So it could be a wink and a nod. Um, mm-hmm. It could be it literally says the request or suggestion of a candidate. Sometimes the regulations say that it can be that they have a former employee, someone who used to work for the campaign who's now working for the outside group or the other way around, mm-hmm. or even just using a common vendor that's had access to the materials. So now put that in the context of things like Trump saying, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you find those emails, mm-hmm. and then a massive, uh, you know, document dump of, of uh, you know, stolen emails being released uh, just days later, mm-hmm. uh, or the idea of Paul Manafort passing Trump campaign polling data to Konstantin Kalimnik, um, mm-hmm. Russian operative, uh, and think of that in the context of the, um, the former employee or common vendor type of scenario. So Mueller, and I don't mean this is a personal attack on Mueller or anyone who worked on uh, that team because they're not campaign finance experts, but they missed uh, a, a an important area of the law that the Federal Election Commission has the authority to investigate and, and the obligation to at least make a decision on our administrative complaint that alleged this. Did, did uh, Mueller uh, m- mistakenly not look at that, or was that not part of his portfolio? In other words, was he looking at something else entirely, looking at criminal violations of law, whereas you're focused and, and the complaint with the FEC is, is focused on civil violations of campaign finance law. Is that just something that he, he was not l- l- looking at as part of his uh, mandate? 
Well, to be clear, um, violating the campaign finance laws uh, can be criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, campaign consultants and others uh, have, have gone to prison. I won't say it's common, but mm-hmm. it has happened for violating these exact provisions regarding uh, not disclosing uh, coordinated political spending. Because what coordinated political spending basically does is it's a way of working around all the campaign finance limits. You're uh-huh. limited in how much uh, a wealthy person can donate directly to a candidate, but uh, limits on outside groups are not so limited. And the, the, the theory, you might say the fiction, that the Supreme Court has put out there yeah. is that as long as they're not coordinated, that's okay. But if they're coordinated, um, then it's basically undermining the entire legal structure. So Mueller could have um, taken a criminal justice approach towards the campaign finance aspect. I think, honestly, it was an error um, by being uh, more familiar with other areas of federal criminal law, Mm -hmm. and they they didn't have any campaign finance experts on their team. And uh, to be fair, I've analogized this in, in some places to, like, Al Capone being brought up for... Uh, you know, tax evasion mm-hmm. um, in, in the sense that there were many aspects of what happened in the 2016 election that are uh, extremely troubling um, from a, a legal as well as from a you know, broader democracy preservation standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have with the campaign finance law is a, a way of framing it and capturing that, for example, even illegal political spending is required to be disclosed. And that's what um, both uh, the Russian government and the Trump campaign failed to do, uh, and that's the information that we would have if they had disclosed it. And, for example, that's what uh, Donald Trump's attorney, Michael Cohn, went to jail for, for those uh, uh, payouts to uh, Stormy Daniels that should have been reported as campaign finance uh, uh, spending. And so, uh, you know, as noted, we've we've reported for many years on the show on the FEC on a lot of FEC failures, often after staff investigators at the commission have looked into a particular complaint, found it to be well supported by evidence, have recommended further investigation of the panel six commissioners only for the matter to then be shut down entirely when the panel splits with the three to three vote. On, uh, on moving forward, uh, since it takes the agreement of four FEC commissioners to move anything forward. Is that what happened in this case, uh, Ron Fine, or did the FEC fail to even look at your 2016, camp- uh, 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 2016 complaint at all, as far as you can tell? Did you ever hear anything back from the FEC over these past five years? Well, as far as we can tell, because the FEC does operate as something of a black hole um, mm-hmm. after you, you file your complaint, but what they have not done is rendered a decision. If they had issued a final decision dismissing our complaint because they deadlocked three to three, um, then we would at least be able to analyze that and look at what was the basis that the, uh, you know, what did the staff say? Mm-hmm. What did the, uh, you know, the three commissioners who wanted to go ahead and enforce say? What did the three who didn't want to say? And we could challenge that in court. Instead, what we're facing is a lack of a decision. Uh, and so uh, this lawsuit that we filed is to compel them to issue a decision. Now, depending on the decision that they issue, we may have to go ahead and sue them over that decision, but that would be a second step. Right now, we're just asking them to issue a decision already. Are, are they required to do so? I know you're up against the five-year statute of limitations here. Are they required to make a finding uh, within those five years, or, or can they just let any all these uh, complaints simply languish like they have the, done here? The statute says that uh, the 
somebody who's filed a complaint can sue uh, after 120 days if uh-huh. the FEC hasn't taken action. Now, in reality, the FEC never <laughs> resolves complaints within 120 days. If that's happened at any time in the past, you know, 45 years, um, I, I would be surprised. Um, but what it usually happens is, you know, it could be three years, maybe maybe four. Five years is really the outer limit that I'm familiar with of the FEC sitting on a complaint. It, mm. it seems to be really unprecedented for it to have taken this long. And we have no idea why it's taken this long, I guess. Uh, wh- what is it that you, in brief, uh, what is it that you suspect happened in 2016 that, that actually violated the campaign finance laws uh, that resulted in the 26, uh, 2016 complaint in the first place with the FEC? Well, you know, at the time that we filed the complaint uh, in 2016, we actually knew less in some ways uh, than, than we know now. And, and that's why I, I don't want to uh, overly denigrate the Mueller investigation because they, they did uncover, you know, some useful uh, information that, that helped shine some light on things. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, uh, we, we also didn't know about the Trump Tower meeting um, at the time that we filed the administrative complaint. But mm-hmm. the point is that the Federal Election Commission also has investigative resources uh, that it, it could have been uh, applying all this time, and, uh, and and they could have conducted an investigation. The statute even provides that they can request assistance from other agencies. So if they you know needed help from Department of Justice or Department of State when it comes to dealing with you know foreign entity or something mm-hmm. like that, they they had those resources. And what has uh, not happened is any accountability being placed on uh, on the Trump campaign or, or the Russian government for that interference during the the Trump administration, we could at least understand why that wasn't happening, Mm -hmm. um, because the uh, Department of Justice under the Trump administration was pretty clearly not going to be pursuing either the Russian government or or the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. The Federal Election Commission is an independent, bipartisan agency, and uh, while uh, obviously some of the uh, commissioners were were appointed by uh, President Trump, um, it has an independent authority. It, it, you know, the, their commissioners don't report to the president. And now that we're uh, almost a year into the Biden presidency mm-hmm. and the Department of Justice has shown no interest in pursuing any of these claims at this point, it seems like the Federal Election Commission uh, may be you know, the last place mm. that we can turn to. And I've got some questions about uh, for you uh, real quick on, on, on the DA, DOJ that I want to get to in a second, Ron Fine. But uh, how long is this process now expected to take in federal district court, where, as you say, you're just now trying to get the FEC to essentially vote up or down on whether they're going to pursue this matter at all? How long is this process going to take in, in uh, federal district court? Could we Could we be looking at another five years? I'm asking because I'm wondering... You know, how much evidence, if any, is actually going to be left to look into after all of this time, even if action is ultimately compelled? Well, the, the issue that's present in, in this lawsuit right now is simply whether the FEC has taken too long um, to render a decision. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's basically two ways that I could imagine that uh, playing out. Um, one is that we actually have to litigate it, and that, could, that would be definitely several months. But one thing that's been happening a lot recently um, is that when these types of delay lawsuits have been filed, uh, some uh, of the commissioners have declined to authorize the agency to defend itself in court because it takes four votes to do anything in the Mm -hmm. FEC. And if there is 
uh, not a four-vote majority to appear in court. Mm-hmm. This has happened several times recently. Yep. The FEC has simply defaulted. And then the statute provides, and this was rarely, uh, if ever, used until just the past year or so, the statute provides that if the uh, if there's a default judgment or, or a judgment, if the FEC doesn't uh, comply mm-hmm. with a court order within 30 days, then the plaintiff can just go ahead and sue um, the parties that they filed the administrative complaint against directly. In other words, if that plays out that way, then we would be in a position to sue the Trump campaign and the Russian government and, you know, cut the FEC out of the picture entirely. Wow. So that could be an interesting turn of events. Uh, all right. Well, stay in touch with us on this case, Ron Fine. Very interesting. Very fascinating. Really happy uh, that you guys are pursuing this. As I noted, uh, a couple of questions on on the DOJ is sort of a, a separate-ish but related matter here, Ron. Your, your group, Free Speech for People, has been one of the leaders in demanding accountability for the rogue Trump administration and his, frankly, his entire criminal cabal. You called early on Attorney General Merrick Garland before he was even confirmed by the Senate to convene a Trump task force uh, once he was in office to investigate this huge list of apparent crimes that we all sort of know about, you know, by Trump and his clan before, during, and I suppose now after his time in office. And more recently, uh, we discussed with um, FSFP founder John Bonifaz, your colleague there, he was calling on Garland to step down for his failure to seemingly take any action at the DOJ against Trump. I, I think that call uh, came from from uh, free speech came just before the criminal contempt indictment that was brought against Steve Bannon after the referral from Congress. Has your group's position on calling for Garland's resignation changed uh, in any way uh, in light of that uh, indictment against Bannon? Uh, honestly, uh, the, the call for uh, for Garland to, to resign is, is even stronger right now. And the evidence that continues to emerge from uh, the House investigation of January 6th, for example, all these text messages uh, mm-hmm. that we've recently learned about, uh, continues to show that, well, the January 6th committee is, I, I don't want to overplay it as if it's the answer to all things, but it's moving forward. Uh, the Department of Justice is focused on low-level rioters, mm-hmm. but even looking back at pre-January 6th crimes, uh, you may, re- as you mentioned, Michael Cohen went to prison for campaign finance violations involving uh, payments to Stormy Daniels and and uh, and, and Ms. Mm-hmm. McDougal, who were Trump's uh, mistresses at the time. And the criminal information in that case made very clear that. Uh, his co-conspirator, unindicted co-conspirator, was individual one, uh, mm-hmm. the president of the United States. Um, Trump has faced no accountability whatsoever for that. And there's a, you know, obstruction of justice, which mm-hmm. was cited in the Mueller report, and Mueller very clearly didn't um, formally charge Trump with obstruction of justice only because, and he said this, because mm-hmm. of a Department of Justice policy against uh, charging current president. So Trump is no longer the current president. So Garland has had nearly a year to bring, he could have started with the simplest charge. He could have started with the one involving, you know, the, the Daniels and McDougal payments, mm-hmm. where all the work has already been done by the Southern District of New York. Uh, and then he could have moved on to the obstruction of justice, where, where Mueller had done all the work, and then maybe moved on to the more complicated and more recent ones. But in, in fact, we've seen none of this, no prosecutions uh, of, of Trump or, or any of the people who were, were closest to him. And 
Merrick Garland has, has had a life of honorable public service, and I, I don't mean this as a personal attack, but he's not the right man for the current moment. We need a different man or woman uh, in that place who understands the need of vigorous prosecution. Do we know for certain, Ron, that Garland is not investigating these things? And by the way, uh, Donald Trump was not just a, a co-conspirator in that uh, Stormy Daniels matter. He was described by federal prosecutors as the director of that uh, conspiracy. But do we know that Garland is not investigating. And the reason I ask, uh, you know, many were critical, for example, when he appeared to be taking no action at all for several weeks on the contempt referral from Congress uh, for Steve Bannon. And then it actually turned out that a grand jury had been convened, had heard the matter and had recommended two indictments that uh, could earn Bannon two years in prison. Uh, if he's found guilty, no one had even heard or known that a grand jury had been convened, which in theory is supposed to be how it works. Is it possible even that an investigation of many of these Trump related crimes could actually be underway? But we just you know, don't yet know about it, which is supposed to be the way it, it, it works. Well, I would say that for some of the, the older misconduct, um, including uh, 2016 uh, election issues, um, which are you know, approaching statutes of limitations, and certainly the, uh, the, the Daniels and McDougal payments, uh, which uh, all the evidence was already laid out, and, and the obstruction of justice that was laid out in the, the Mueller report. Um, there, there's not really anything more to investigate um, about those. They're, they're ready to file or, or not going to file them. For some of the more recent misconduct, say stemming from January 6th, obviously federal criminal investigations are intended to be secret um, and, and can proceed in secrecy in their earliest stages. However, that can't last forever, especially in Washington, D.C. Mm. If there was uh, an advanced uh, investigation that had gotten past to the very earliest stages, uh, D.C. leaks, um, somebody would have mm -hmm. said something about it. So I, I think it's implausible that the Department of Justice is, you know, deep into, um, you know, serious investigations. They may have, you know, started something at a very early phase, but it's pretty implausible that they're they're far along in the process. Uh, and I, I've got just a minute or two, uh, but why do you think that is, Ron? Why, um, if if you're right, if there is no investigation moving forward on these, uh, you know, clear crimes that even the DOJ themselves have documented, uh, like in the Michael Cohn case, wh why? I, I realize I'm asking you to guess here, but but why? <laughs> why are they not moving forward? I would I would only be guessing, and I would have to try and put myself in um, the mind of Garland, who, uh, well, obviously DOJ is a, a large agency. Um, if he wanted investigations to, to move forward, he could make them do so. Uh -huh. um, and conversely, if he wanted to block investigations that, um, that you know, uh, mm -hmm. line prosecutors wanted to bring, he could also do that. M my best guess is that he has a notion of what he considers to be um, uh, interference of uh, prosecution in politics and the need for DOJ to remain independent from the political hurly-burly mm. that honestly dates back to the last time he was at DOJ, which was in the 1970s, mm. and that he's operating under a dated set of assumptions that don't really fit with today's world. And I think he's wrong, assuming that's his basis, yeah. I think he's wrong uh, in thinking that he can keep 
um, that the best way to maintain respect for the Department of Justice is to, you know, let all of these things slide because uh, if he doesn't uh, make a firm stance for the rule of law, these things are going to happen again. Yeah. And with Trump himself, is going to repeatedly learn yeah. the lesson that he can get away with everything. Not, not to mention, by the way, you know, back in the 70s, I do recall there were some pretty high-level prosecutions of some pretty high administration officials during yeah. uh, something that I think they used to call Watergate. Yeah, uh, that's the, right. The, the one of, uh, last question here, one of the reasons I'm asking about all of this is because, you know, a couple of the subpoenaed witnesses by the uh, House uh, January 6th committee, uh, former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, Trump attorney John Eastman, uh, they both said that they plan to plead the fifth in their testimony to the committee, fearing potential criminal prosecution. It is unknown why they would fear that specifically, since we know of no such criminal probe by the DOJ. Uh, And I'm asking you to speculate again, but can you unpack what could be going on there for us? Are they just afraid if they do talk, it'll trigger a criminal investigation? Or is there potentially something underway that we just don't know about? Well, first of all, they they do have that right to plead uh, the fifth. Uh, I I think it is what you suggested, that they're afraid that if they talk, they will um, create evidence that will lead to an investigation that is probably not started yet. Uh, I I think that uh, if they thought they were already under investigation, Mm -hmm. um, then they would have taken a a somewhat different um, tack to that. Um, But the the necessity for the committee to uh, gain information directly from them uh, certainly doesn't um, counterbalance the fact that the Department of Justice which has vastly more investigative resources than this, you know, congressional committee uh, should have been on this months ago. Yeah, especially given how much this uh, House committee has been able to turn up already. I'm hoping at least at the end, if they uh, issue a report, it will also include some criminal referrals, which you know say something like, "Hey, DOJ, uh, get your ass in gear, because here's a whole bunch of crimes we found." Anyway, Ron Fine, Legal Director for Free Speech for People, uh, the great government accountability group. You can find them at freespeechforpeople.org. Their work is incredibly important. Uh, You can also find them on the Twitters at FSFP, and you can find Ron himself on the Twitters at Ron Fine. That's spelled F-E-I-N. Ron, I hope you'll uh, stay in touch with us as this 2016 case moves forward against the FEC. If you guys won't let it go, I promise we won't either. (laughs) Thanks. I I appreciate you having me on. Always great talking to you. Thanks, Ron. Okay, uh, before we uh, take a quick break, and we'll come back with Desi Doyne in the Green News Report. Yep. This just in, speaking of not letting things go, (laughs) and I'm sort of reading this uh, to you as as I'm reading it because it uh, came in as I was speaking with Ron there. Federal judge tosses Trump lawsuit to block income taxes from being released to Congress. A federal judge late Tuesday threw out former President Donald Trump's lawsuit seeking to block a House committee from getting his tax returns. Remember this case? Oh, yes. Uh, Filed uh, back by uh, the House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richie Neal back in 2019. Uh, citing the federal law that requires the Treasury Department and the IRS to turn over individual tax returns 
when demanded by any of the three congressional tax committee uh, committees, House Ways and Means is one of them. In this case, U.S. District Court Judge Trevor McFadden said efforts by Trump's lawyers to block the handover were wrong on the law. He wrote a long line of Supreme Court cases requires great deference to facially valid congressional inquiries. Even the special solicitude accorded former presidents does not alter the outcome, but the judge put the effect of his ruling on hold for 14 days to give the Trump legal team time to appeal. Oh, do you think they'll do that? (laughs) Probably. We're all on pins and needles to find out. In any event, this case has gone up, uh, up and back down from the U.S. Supreme Court, if I'm remembering it correctly already. I think this was Trump's last chance to stop it. It'll now have to work its way back up to the Supreme Court, who last time around did not seem inclined to help Trump out on this matter. Yes, the wheels of justice do turn slowly, but hopefully they turn towards accountability. I hope so. We will find out. Uh, But there's some good news. As you know, I've been telling you, there is no way out for Trump. It's going to take a while, but the walls continue to close in in every direction, and he knows it. And it's delightful to watch him squirm. All right, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, reading more on that uh, decision uh, late this afternoon by Judge McFadden. Uh, turns out he was appointed to the bench by Donald Trump. Oh, the one who has now rejected Trump's latest attempt to keep the his his tax returns out of the hands of the congressional committee, the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, he concluded his ruling by saying that Congress can accomplish its objectives without making the returns public. Quote, it might not be right or wise to publish the returns, but it is the chairman's right to do so. Good. The judge recognized. So we will see. Uh, also, before we get to our Green News report, uh, which is pretty grim today, <laughs> given the news we're dealing with, uh, I should note some good-ish news out here in California. We are getting nothing but rain. Yes. An atmospheric uh, river, they call it, uh, which comes not a moment too soon in the middle of a years-long drought. I hear we're going to get one next week as well, Des. Don't I hope so. Don't know if you so. know about that. Rain is nice. Whether that changes uh, the, the drought conditions that we're, uh, we've been facing out here for so long remains to be seen, but some good news in that, well, maybe we won't have any more wildfires for a week or two. Taking the good news where we can find it. And with that out of the way, 
It's time for our latest Green News Report. This is the deadliest tornado event we have ever had. Unprecedented December tornado swarm plows path of destruction in Midwest. This is going to be an historic tornado outbreak, one of the worst we have seen in the nation's history. And yes, man-made global warming is increasing the risk of major tornado outbreaks. Plus, the future of transportation in our nation and around the world is electric. Biden administration unveils strategy for national network of EV charging stations. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So people here will say they have great compassion and they want to help the people of Puerto Rico and the people of Texas and the people of Florida. But notice they have great compassion with someone else's money. Oh, that must be Kentucky Senator Rand Paul from 2017. He should meet Kentucky Senator Rand Paul from 2021, who's now asking for federal aid with other people's money for Kentucky. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Rand Paul has voted time and time and time against federal disaster aid for all sorts of states around the country. Now that it's his state that's under the gun, now he's asking for federal aid. Yes. Go figure. Socialism for me, but not for thee. Officials are struggling to restore water, power, and heat to tens of thousands of residents amid freezing temperatures after more than 50 tornadoes plowed a path of destruction across at least six states in an unprecedented December outbreak over the weekend. As we go to air, the outbreak killed nearly 100 people, a toll that is expected to rise and destroyed or damaged thousands of homes from Arkansas to Illinois just weeks before Christmas. The strongest tornado could have been on the ground for 250 miles, which, if confirmed, would be a record. In Illinois, a tornado demolished an Amazon warehouse, killing at least six, but Kentucky was by far the hardest hit. Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear choked up in announcing the devastating loss of life with more than 70 killed. The age... The age range is five months to 86 years and six or younger than 18. President Biden has signed emergency declarations for Kentucky, freeing up federal resources. Whatever they need, when they need it. And he will head to Kentucky on Wednesday. In Illinois, Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker suggested that building codes for facilities such as that Amazon warehouse that was partly destroyed may need to be adjusted as global warming exacerbates extreme weather disasters. So it makes us wonder, I have to say, uh, about whether or not we need to change code based upon the climate change that we're seeing all around us. Yeah, if you're going to get tornadoes in December, I think there's a lot of stuff you're going to have to change, Governor. And yes, human-caused climate change is a factor. Climate scientists say that while it's unclear if climate change is affecting the frequency of tornadoes, it is boosting and intensifying the conditions that fuel such outbreaks as humanity warms the planet with carbon pollution. Scientists confirm that Tornado Alley is shifting farther east, away from the Kansas-Oklahoma area and more into the southeast, where this system hit. December tornadoes do occasionally occur, but not like this historic outbreak, which was fueled by unusually hot temperatures in the southeast that were more like spring than winter. 
In fact, Memphis hit a record high of 80 degrees on the day the storm hit. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. We had a lot of tornadoes. They were not in December. Here's climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann on Democracy Now! Make no mistake, we have been seeing an increase in these massive tornado outbreaks that can be attributed to the warming of the planet. But what's going to happen here, we're going to continue to see that climate change is going to combine with natural factors like the La Nina event that we're experiencing to produce ever more extreme examples of these sorts of phenomena. But finally, some better news. Vice President Kamala Harris had the unenviable task on Monday of pivoting from the federal disaster response to the deadly tornado outbreak to unveiling the Biden-Harris electric vehicle charging plan, an ambitious federal strategy that directs more than $7 billion, including money from the recently passed trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, to build 500,000 charging stations for electric vehicles across the country, bring down the cost of electric cars, and help the U.S. catch up to China in the plug-in EV market. Here's Vice President Harris at an EV charging facility in Maryland. With every charging station you install, you are building a better America. And hopefully it may someday in the future help us have fewer tornado outbreaks in the middle of December. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We sing one song for my old Kentucky home, for my old Kentucky home far away. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yes. Uh, thanks also to our guest today, freespeechforpeople.org's Ron Fine, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, all of which everything we do is made possible only by listeners like you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Thank you very much for keeping us in mind for your end-of-year giving. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Till we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. We no more, my lady. No, we no more today. We sing one song for my old Kentucky home, for my old Kentucky home, far away.